Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor of Preaching and Vision here with the Hallows Church, and I have the joy of kickstarting a new series in the life of our church today, a series titled Strangers and Exiles, Sinners of a Different Sort. We're going to be studying a powerful little epistle or letter known as 1 Peter. And we expect that this study will take us all the way up to the threshold of Advent. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and find your way to 1 Peter and and mark it because we're going to be there over and over and over again over the next several weeks. And so at this time, I encourage you to find your way to 1 Peter chapter 1 and locate the passage of scripture that my daughter Delaney read so well for us a moment ago. 1 Peter has been described as the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and the conduct that it inspires. Martin Luther once said of this letter that that it contains everything that a Christian needs to know. And so its relevance is both substantial and universal. It is substantial in the sense that Peter's writing to encourage Christians to stand firm in what he refers to in chapter 5, verse 12, as the true grace of God. Due to a variety of circumstances and situations, many Christians were were slipping and sliding away from the gospel. And they were being pulled in one of two directions. There were some who were slipping and sliding away, away from the gospel and towards a cultural assimilation to the demise of their gospel identity and ethics. Desiring to to fit in with everyone and be agreeable about everything, many of them were uh, being tempted to compromise the calling of God's grace upon their lives, and they were losing themselves, forgetting who they were to be in the world and why they are to be in the world. But then there were others who were slipping and sliding in a different direction. They were slipping and sliding away from the gospel and towards a type of cultural antagonism to the demise of their gospel witness and influence because they were being slandered and treating poorly in society as a result of their faith in Jesus. They, some of them were growing uh, bitter and resentful towards society. They were being tempted to be harsh with everyone about everything. And they were hating culture, hating society, hating the world around them. And so Peter writes this letter in large part to say, hey, look, don't return evil with evil. Don't, re- don't fight fire with fire. Don't repay injustice with more injustice. Instead, church, be like Jesus. Engage all of your social interaction with a sense of gentleness and respect, keeping, keeping a clear conscience in everything that you say and everything that you do and how you're relating to the world around you. You see, neither assimilation nor antagonism are appropriate Christian responses to the world around us. That we are not called to to assimilate and to lose our identity and ethics as followers of Jesus in order to make life easier for us in the world. But at the same time, we are not to stand back and antagonize the world around us growing embittered and hard towards. No, we are, we are called and we must learn what they needed to learn, which is to stand firm in the true grace, grace of God, to live as strangers and exiles, sinners of a different sort. And so the relevance of this letter is substantial for us today, but it is also universal. 
Its contents apply to every believer, no matter where they are located in the world. It opens up by uh, the original readers were dispersed throughout an area known as Asia Minor. They lived in five Roman provinces that are named. You have Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. A vast area covering close to 130,000 square miles, making this region a little bit smaller than the state of California. And if you were looking this region up on a modern day map today, you'd be looking at the, at the country of Turkey. Now, the most outstanding feature about the geographical destination of this letter was its incredible diversity of land, of population, and of culture. It was a vast area with, with small cities, few and far between, just kind of peppered and scattered throughout the region. And these cities contained a mixed population, mixed population of indigenous peoples, Greek settlers, and Roman colonists. The residents of this region practiced many different religions, and they spoke many different languages. It was an area of the world that proved to be a bit untamable, as many people did not fully assimilate into the Greco-Roman culture. Yet scattered among this diverse population, and scattered across this diverse, this vast region, there were pockets of God's new covenant people. Pockets of God's people littered all across this area. And each and every one of them were chosen by God to embody the difference Jesus makes in all of life. To follow Jesus wherever they live, wherever they work, wherever they learn, wherever they play. And although you and I are 2,000 years removed from the original readers of this letter, nothing has changed. You and I are to embody the difference Jesus makes in all of life. We are to embrace our identity as strangers and exiles, sinners of a different sort. Refusing to assimilate with the society to the demise of our distinct gospel identity and witness. And at the same time, we refuse to antagonize society to the demise of our gospel witness and influence. We want to learn to embody the difference Jesus makes in all of life, no matter where we are in this world. What does it mean for us to live as strangers and exiles, sinners of a different sort? Well, let's dive into this letter and begin the journey of discovering what that means. The letter opens uh, in a way that was quite typical of first century Hellenistic correspondence. Rather than having to scroll all the way to the bottom to figure out, okay, who wrote this letter? Who sent it to me? No, the author drops their name at the very beginning, which is quite efficient. And we read at the beginning, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, before becoming an apostle of Jesus, Peter was a fisherman. And he spent his days fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And, and although that was a noble, middle-class profession it stands to reason that lurking deep within his heart was another desire or another dream. Lurking deep within the heart of many Jewish men in the first century was the dream of becoming a disciple taught and trained by a prominent rabbi. And rabbis made it a common practice to select disciples at a young age. And so the fact that Peter is a fisherman suggests that at some point in his life, he was passed by and passed over by prominent rabbis. 
Rabbis who refused to take him on as a disciple. Rabbis who did not consider him to be up to snuff and worthy of their association, worthy of their identification. And so Peter resigned himself to the respectable life of a fisherman, but it was a far cry from the prestigious life of being someone's disciple in the first century Jewish world. But all that starts to change one day when Jesus shows up on the horizon of his life. He steps onto the scene at the Sea of Galilee and he looks at Peter and he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me and I will give your life purpose. I will give your life passion. I will give your life direction. I will help you find your bearings as you journey through the world that is en route to the new world that I'm going to make. And Peter and his pals, James and John, immediately dropped their nets and they followed Jesus. They identified with Jesus. They became Jesus' disciples. And at that time, Peter did not fully understand who Jesus was. He did not fully understand the reason Jesus had entered the world. But at that time, his life did begin to change. At that time, he began to follow Jesus in faith. But the change that Peter would experience was a a change that did not come instantly and it did not come easily. Many of us make the mistake of thinking that once we become Christians, once we uh, identify with Jesus and we follow Christ, once that happens in our lives, then we have this image of the Christian life just being putting one step in front of another and moving steadily upward towards spiritual maturity in Christ-likeness, growing in intimacy with God, growing in the fruit of God in our lives. But, but experience tells a different story because our experience as Christians says, you know, the Christian life isn't like stepping onto an escalator and ascending towards an unhindered path towards Christian maturity and Christ-likeness. no. We know that following Jesus isn't a steady incline. It is, it is a journey that comes with many highs and many lows. It's a, a journey marked by twists and turns. There are times in our lives as we follow Jesus where we may seem to take one step forward and then immediately two steps back. Following Jesus is filled with highs and lows. This was certainly Peter's experience as there was a lot of work that God needed to do within Peter to change his life. And by the time he writes 1 Peter, he's walked with Jesus for approximately three decades. And his feet slipped on more than one occasion. He stumbled and bumbled on in several situations. He himself had to learn what it means to stand firm in the true grace of God. There was one moment when Jesus was hanging with Peter and the disciples and he was informing them that he would go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And Peter heard that word and he objected, chiming in, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And in an effort to love Jesus, he he misunderstands Jesus's mission. He actually finds himself standing in opposition of the very reason why Jesus entered the world in the first place. And so Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have your mind on the things of God. You have your mind on the things of man. And he rebuked Peter in that moment in a way that he would do very similar on other occasions. After entering Jerusalem, Jesus uh, sat Peter down and he told him again, Simon, Simon, look, 
Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter responds in the conversation, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's so confident in his commitment to Christ. But then listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said in response, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny me, deny three times that you know me. And later, not, later that night, Peter, which was a nickname Jesus gave him, his name meant rock, but Peter would crumble under the social pressure that he faced. And he would deny knowing Jesus three times. But the beauty of Jesus is that Jesus never gave up on Peter. Because Jesus is the kind of Savior who has this uncanny ability to use not only our faithful moments, but he can actually use our unfaithful moments as well. And so not long after Jesus would be crucified and risen, he met with Peter again, and the two of them shared breakfast on a beach. And as they're having this meal together, they engage in a conversation where Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds to Jesus with utter, sincere, uh, utter sincerity. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And in reply, each time Peter, uh, Jesus would tell Peter, well, then feed my sheep, tend my lambs, and feed my sheep. And from that moment forward, Peter would serve Jesus as an apostle. He would live and serve as an apostle, a messenger, an authoritative representative of Christ in the world. And the letter of 1 Peter is evidence of him feeding the sheep and tending to the lambs. This letter is designed to help you and I follow Jesus. This letter is designed to help you, our souls, be nourished with gospel realities so that we can embody those same realities wherever we live, work, learn, and play so that we can be who Jesus has called us to be and do the things that Jesus called us to do. But understand this about Peter. Peter did not become an, an apostle because he was perfect. Peter was a man who struggled with self-sufficiency. Peter was a man who struggled with pride. People, P Peter was a man who struggled with the fear of man. And his struggles with the fear of man did not end at the beach over breakfast with Jesus. About 10 years later, there's a moment where 10, 15 years later, there's a moment where G Peter is sharing a meal with a group of non-Jewish Gentile Christians. But when another group of Jewish Christians entered the room, they he withdrew fellowship from these non-Jewish Christians and he went to eat with the Jewish Christians, turning his back on those who many Jewish Christians at the time considered to be second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And then Paul shows up and he rebuked Peter and said, Peter, look, your, your conduct in this moment is not in line with the gospel. You are not being who Jesus called you to be. You are not doing what Jesus has called you to do. And so he's rebuked by Peter and to, um, rebuked by Paul. And to his credit, Peter would repent and he would align his life up with gospel realities and he would grow further in his understanding of the grace of God. He would learn better how to stand firm in God's grace. Even though Peter carried the nickname Rock, in many moments, he looked more like Plato. 
And there's a reason why you and I are drawn to his story in the scriptures. There's a reason why we love to read about Peter and to study about Peter is because his story is so familiar to us. We too struggle with self-sufficiency. We too struggle with pride. We too struggle with the fear of man. But like Peter, and like Peter, we are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We are people who sin and have continued to sin even after we've experienced God's redeeming grace, even after we've become followers of Jesus. Peter writes this letter after many years of reflecting upon that grace, and though he is not without sin, he is not without grace either. And so when you think about your life and my life, understand that we are people who are not without sin, but we are not without grace either. Peter wasn't an apostle because he was perfect. You are not a Christian because you are perfect. He was an apostle, and you are a Christian because of the grace of God, because of the grace and mercy of God. And so Peter, Jesus' apostle here, identifies, he then shifts and he begins to identify who he's writing to and he, and he begins to address Jesus' people. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen living as exiles. A powerful description. These two descriptions taken together speak to the tension that you and I are called to live into as we follow Jesus through the world. On one hand, there's the word chosen, which literally means elect. And it's a word that speaks to the fact that we are loved by God. We, are, we were pursued by God. We were wanted by God. But then on the other hand, there's the word exile. The word exile refers to people who are not at home, people who are not at home. And so Peter, right off the bat, as he's addressing Jesus's people, understand that he calls them this strange dual title of elect exiles. This is who you are, Christian. This is who we are as the church. We are elect exiles. Let's think first about what it means to be elect or chosen. The language of election, the language of being chosen by God, it's, it impresses upon us God's eternal and exquisite love. It's a word, it's language that should quite honestly be used among us and be used among us a lot. It's an intramural term. This isn't necessarily the language that we take and we wave in the face of those who are not yet followers of Jesus. Those who do not yet know Jesus as the Savior. Those who are not a part of the new covenant community. We don't take this language and wave it in front of their faces. No, we use this language to encourage our hearts and to remind ourselves of the eternal and exquisite love of God. Now, to say that God loves his people in this way, that we are chosen, that we are the elect, this does not mean God doesn't love anyone else in the world. We know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, God's love is a lot like the sun. You walk outside and the sun is shining upon all of, his, all of God's creation. But if you were to walk outside with a magnifying glass and hold it up, directing light to a particular spot, the sun's light is going to become more intense. It's going to become more concentrated. It's going to shine in a different sort of way. 
Well, when we talk about the gospel of God's grace, the fact that we are chosen by God, eternally and exquisitely loved by God, we are talking about God's love, his, the gospel being a magnifying glass that intensifies and concentrates his love upon his people. Saying it's a different sort of love that we enjoy from God. It's a different sort of love that is burning in our lives and is, and is concentrated upon us as followers of Jesus. Now the question is, why is that? Why are we chosen? Why are we loved in this sort of way? Is it because we are better than all the people around us? Is it because we are better than our neighbor who, do, who does not yet know Jesus? Or we're better than another group or better than another subculture in the city or whatever the case may be? Well, understand that the word used in 1 Peter is the word chosen and not what a guy by the name of Edmund Clowney once said, the word choice. We are chosen people. We are not necessarily choice people. Now, there are many, many members of our church who love to smoke meat. Uh, they love uh, the, the, long, the low and slow cooking process of taking a big piece of meat, putting it on a smoker over indirect heat with some wood burning and smoke filling the air and this long and slow process of, of smoking meat. Now, if you're ever going to smoke meat and barbecue in that way, understand that the king of all smoking is brisket. And to smoke a brisket requires quite an investment, an investment of time and an investment of money. And so if you're going to give yourself to it, if you're going to make that investment, then you want to uh, make sure you are smoking a choice cut of meat. You're going to go to Costco. You're going to uh, visit a butcher. You're going to look at the selection of brisket, and you're going to examine them and compare them to each other. You're going to look for a piece of brisket, Uh, where the marbling is evenly distributed throughout the beef. And the color of the beef is this red, almost a a bright red, almost a purple. You're going to look for a cut of brisket that has, that the fat is this bright white. And you're going to jiggle it a little bit to make sure it's tender and that it will cook in that direction over over the course of of the process. You're literally going to compare briskets to each other and you're going to make a choice selection. Well, understand that the word used here, that we are God's chosen people, we are not necessarily his choice people. We are not chosen because God compared us with everyone around us and concluded that we were better, we were superior, that we were worthy of being loved in a concentrated, intensified fashion. We are chosen. We are not choice Now, to understand the language of election, this language of chosen, we have to understand it in light of the Old Testament. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's a moment when God explains for why Israel was his chosen people, not necessarily his choice people. Listen to what he says. Deuteronomy 7, he says, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. And Peter will take that description. He will take that language and apply it to the church in 1 Peter. 
He applies it right off the bat when he refers to the church as the chosen. But then later in chapter two, verse nine, listen to what he says. He writes to those, he writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Christian, we are chosen. We are not choice. We are chosen by the sheer grace and mercy and love of God. The language of election is not designed to inflate our egos. The language of election is designed to humble our hearts. It's a humbling thing to be chosen by a holy, righteous, loving God. And as you keep reading the introduction here, first Peter, there are three phrases that pop up in verse two that qualify our election, that qualify what it means for us to be chosen. First, we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This means that God concentrated his love upon his people before the world was even created, before there was a beginning, God had already set his affections upon us. And he intended for you and I to know him, not generically as a creator, but personally and intimately as a father. Then he also says that we were chosen through the sanctifying work of the spirit, that God set us apart and swept us up into his family by the Holy Spirit. Later, Peter, later in chapter one, Peter will clarify kind of what that means. And he will say, this happened as you heard and believed the gospel, that as you heard and believed the gospel, something happened within you. You were given new birth. You were given new life. You were brought to an awareness of a living hope. All happening by the power of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And because of his activity, you are now a part of a new covenant community that is the diverse family of God. But then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly for our time together today, is that we were chosen for the purpose of being obedient. We were chosen for the purpose of being obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is powerful gospel imagery. This is powerful gospel imagery. Now keep in mind that that Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered throughout a religiously diverse and a pluralistic society. And he's saying, as you live amongst people who are not like you, who do not share your faith in Jesus, as you are living amongst people who are, who are far too comfortable in this world, as you are living amongst people different from yourself, I don't want you to forget who you are. I don't want you to forget that you belong to God. But not only do I not want you to forget who you are, I don't want you to forget why you are. Don't forget that there is a reason for your election. There is purpose for your redemption. There's a purpose that you are to carry out and to embody and to live for for as long as you dwell wherever you dwell. You know, as followers of Jesus, it's the story of Christ crucified and risen that should become the defining narrative of our lives. 
The story of Christ crucified and risen is what gives shape to who we are and to how we live. It determines our identity and our ethics. It directs our influence and our mission. The story of Christ crucified and risen is the defining narrative of the Christian's existence. It provides the purpose for our lives. So let me ask you, what are you living for right now? What got you out of bed this morning? What purpose are you pursuing? What goal are you seeking to acquire or to achieve? You see, like it or not, we are constantly under the influence of other dynamics that are trying to determine the purpose of our lives, the reason we exist, and and give shape to the goal and the direction of our journey through this world. There was a guy by the name of Charles Taylor many years ago, uh, several years ago now, who wrote a book titled A Secular Age. And in this book, he introduces us to the concept of what's called social imaginaries. He says that a social imaginary is a storied way of thinking that frames our everyday beliefs and practices. It's the way we are taught both explicitly and perhaps more powerfully, implicitly. The ways we are taught to imagine our social existence, the the very reasons we have for living and for journeying through this life. And the whole concept that Taylor is getting after reminds us that every person on the planet is a disciple. That every person is being taught and trained about what it means to live in this world and how they should live in this world. And such teaching comes in large part through the social imaginaries of a given culture. Image-driven narratives that vie for our attention and seek to influence the goal, the purpose, the reason for living. You take, for example, the image of a powerful businesswoman or the image of a rock star. You take the image of a white picket fence, the image of a muscular physique, the image of a wall littered with degrees, the image of a high rise, the the image of a political office or political party, the image of a cause or a movement, the image of a quiet pristine backyard with a view of Mount Rainier. These types of images we are inundated with and they seek to give shape to our goals, to our purpose, to the very reasons that we are living. But the tragic irony of the human experience is that as these images are realized in our lives, it doesn't take very long for us to start looking elsewhere and longing for other things because those imaginaries, those reasons for living cannot account for the very purpose of our existence. Back in the fourth century, a guy by the name of St. Augustine, he, he discovered this. He, he learned this better than most people. This was a man who bought into the social imaginaries of his culture. He believed life was about academics. He believed life was about fame and fortune. He believed life was about pursuing various hedonistic pleasures. So he became a womanizer before he met Jesus. But after he met Jesus, everything began to change and he would make the observation reflecting back upon his life story and the narrative of Christ crucified and risen and what that meant for him. And he'd make this statement. He said, we were created by God and for God and our hearts are restless. Our hearts are homeless until they find their rest or they find their home in God. The God makes little to no appearance in the social imaginaries of our culture. 
This is the challenge of living in the world that is. That God makes little to no appearance in the social imaginaries of our culture. Most of our time is eaten up by images and narratives that have no bearing on the reason why God created us. They have no bearing for the reason why God has chosen us and redeemed us, rescued and saved us. Because most of the social imaginaries of our culture that are surrounding us in every moment of every day, they do not point us to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. They do not point us towards being obedient to following Jesus. They don't remind us of the fact that we've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. But as you consider 1 Peter, one of the things that we're going to discover is the various forms that, that such obedience should take. And as we read through 1 Peter, we're going to learn what it means to to pursue personal holiness. We're going to learn what it means to share the gospel. We're going to learn that being obedient involves showing hospitality, cultivating healthy marriages, being faithful employees and employers, working hard to the glory of God, whatever it is that we are doing. We're going to discover that obedience entails remaining faithful even when It's hard to remain faithful as we discover how to respond to people who may not treat us very well, who may slander us, who may oppress us, who may alienate us. How do we love them? How do we serve them? How do we respond in those moments? First Peter is going to teach us the form that our obedience should take. And in so doing, it's going to give us bearing. It's going to provide our bearings for how we are to live in the world that is as we journey towards the world that is to come. But then notice that in verse one, you can't, verse two, you can't miss that Peter attaches a gospel imaginary, a gospel image to the purpose of being obedient. The image of being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. He takes us to the cross and he says, this is how God has lavished his love upon you. This is how God has shown you mercy. This is how God has given you grace. This is how God has changed your life because he sent Christ to be crucified for your sins and to rise from the dead, to give you hope, to give you life, to give you purpose, to give you perspective. And so this image reminds us that we are part of something much bigger than ourselves because this image, the language that Peter is using is designed to sink us in with a story that started long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem and long before Jesus went to the cross and long before Jesus was resurrected from the grave, that we are a part of a much broader, sweeping story of redemption. This language actually harkens back to what God was doing with the people of Israel. There was a moment when God redeemed Israel from Egypt and he brought them out of slavery And before leading them to the promised land, he brings them to Mount Sinai where he meets with them and he gives them his law. He gives them his word. And after giving his people his law and his word that that was to determine how they were to live in the world, it was to set them apart as a unique people on the earth. He then establishes a covenant with them. He renews a covenant that that he started with Abraham long before this moment. And he ratifies it through a ceremony And I want to read to you what happened because this sets the backdrop for understanding the language of 1 Peter chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, it says, Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. 
And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins and the other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood and splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. So Israel was redeemed. They were given the law. They say, we are going to be obedient. We will be your covenant people in the world. And then blood was shed and it was sprinkled upon them. See, God chose Israel not just because he loved them. He chose Israel because he loved everyone else too. He chose Israel to, so that they would conform their lives to his word, live out his law before the nation so that more and more people would come to know who God is and what he is like for his people. That they would step under the magnifying glass of God's concentrated and intense redeeming love that is focused upon his people in a unique, special way in the world. And so the people of Israel were to embody God's character and to teach God's word to all the nations that surrounded them, to show them what life looks like when God is in charge, when God is ruling and reigning and getting his way. But of course, Israel doesn't do this very well. In fact, they failed miserably. Rather than living God's way according to his word, they lived their way. And they often crumbled under social pressure. They often conformed to the way of life that was popular among the nations that surrounded them. They forfeit their identity on more than one occasion. And eventually this resulted in their exile. Eventually God exiled them from the promised land. In 586 BC, the Babylonians came in and they destroyed Jerusalem. And they dispersed the people of Israel throughout the Babylonian empire. And as they're living in exile, because of their disobedience, God then sends them various prophets who bring God's word back to them, words of hope, words that should have grabbed their attention and inspired them in a different direction, words that would help them as they lived in exile. Because these words, God assured them that one day he'd establish a new covenant a new covenant that would be ratified by blood far better than that of bulls or goats or sheep. A new covenant that would depend upon the obedience, not of Israel, but the obedience of another. The obedience of the true Israel, the obedience of the true son of God. And one day Peter and the disciples found themselves reclining at table with Jesus and Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he was preparing them to understand what was about to happen when he's crucified on the cross. That he has come to establish a new covenant for a new people who live a new way in the world. And so the image of being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus was a reminder that the chosen, the elect, belong to the new covenant. The new covenant that will be 
forever upheld, not by their obedience, but by the obedience of Jesus. Not by their faithfulness, but by the faithfulness of Jesus. It is a new covenant that glorifies the Savior, Jesus, who lived the life that you and I could not live, died the death that we deserve to die, and rose from the grave conquering sin, conquering Satan, and conquering death, rose from the grave to establish a new heaven and a new, the new heavens and the new earth to make all things new. This is the Jesus that the new covenant is dependent upon. Now his obedience in this direction, this one who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, his obedience should do a few things for us. On one hand, his obedience should energize our obedience that because we've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, that, that means we've been brought into a new covenant where we've been given new hearts and we've been given the Holy Spirit. We have hearts of flesh, no longer hearts of stone. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us at all times and in every moment of every day. We have a leg up on ancient Israel in this regard. We have the Spirit of God in the new covenant which should energize our obedience But then Jesus' obedience should also serve as the pattern for our obedience. We take our cues from Jesus on how to live in the world that is. We follow his example. He is the pattern that we trace. So we see how he loved his enemies. We see how he blessed those who persecuted him. We saw how he neither assimilated nor antagonized the surrounding culture. And we do likewise. And we live distinct lives, saying we're not going to assimilate to the neglect of who we are and what we are about. And we're not going to antagonize to the demise of our influence and our witness to being effective representatives of Jesus. No, we're going to follow in his footsteps, grow in the image of Christ, living, loving, and serving like Jesus in the world that is. But then third, the third aspect of his obedience, and perhaps the most important for us to think about in this moment, is that his obedience assures you and I that though we are living as exiles today, we are not living as exiles because we've been unfaithful to the covenant. We are not living as exiles because of our disobedience. We live as exiles because we're being faithful to the covenant because we are being faithful to Jesus, because we are following Christ. Israel was exiled because of their disobedience. We are exiled because of the obedience of Jesus. To belong to God on the basis of his grace and in light of the gospel, to belong to God in that way and for that reason means that we no longer belong to the world around us. We no longer belong to this world. Did you know that every person is an exile? Every person is an exile. Either we are exiled from God and at home in the world, or we are exiled from the world and we are at home in Christ. Well, as followers of Jesus, we found our home in Christ, our heart's true home in relationship with God. And because we belong to God, we no longer belong to the world around us. This is what makes us exiles. This is what determines how we live in the world right now. The elect, the chosen, live as exiles. And this would become the dominant metaphor, the dominant 
image for Jesus' people all throughout 1 Peter. The image pops up again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to this. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. And then at the end of the letter, Peter refers to Babylon in a metaphorical, kind of code-like reason that we'll get after when we get there later. But he refer, referring to Babylon is intended to identify the church with the nation of Israel. And just as Israel lived as exiles in Babylon, you and I are to live as exiles today. But what does that mean? What does it mean practically to live as exiles? Does this mean that since this world is not our home, we now turn our backs upon it? We put our head in the sand and we ignore the needs and the hurts and the hardships that surround us in the world. Do we just wait to die and be with Jesus? Do we just wait for Jesus to return and do nothing with the time that we have in the here and now? Well, this is where I, this is where I really want you to understand something important about what it means to be an elect exile. See, our election speaks to our purpose. There's a reason for why we are alive right now and we live in the city of Seattle right now. Our election comes with purpose. We are to testify to the, to the God who loves us and called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are to bear witness to who God is and what God is like. But then at the same time, our exile, our exile gives our lives perspective. Our election provides purpose and our exile provides perspective. As exiles, we know that this world is not our true home. And so we do not labor to turn this world into heaven. Instead, we are living and laboring to give this world a taste of heaven for as long as we are here. This is how Israel was instructed to live in Babylon. When they were living as exiles in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah wrote to them and brought God's word to bear on them to instruct them on how to live in that setting in a way very similar to what Peter is doing for his original readers and by extension what Peter is doing for you and I today as God was speaking his word through the apostle. Now, what did Jeremiah tell Israel? How did he tell them to live in exile? And what can we learn from that? Well, Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, we read Jeremiah's instructions, what, how God was telling them to live in exile. Jeremiah 29, verse 5. The prophet writes, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I've deported you to. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. Do you hear what God is saying? Do you hear his voice in this moment? Israel was not to silo themselves off from Babylonian society. Instead, they were to lean in. They were to lean in and live out God's word, live as exiles amongst the people of Babylon, embodying God's word. The language found in Jeremiah 29 is language that echoes exactly what God told Adam and Eve to do in the Garden of Eden. 
In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply. They were told to fill and till the earth. They were told to exercise dominion. And here in Babylon, Israel is being told, look, give Babylon a taste of what I intend life to be. Give them a glimpse of what life was like in Eden, and in so doing, you will give them a taste of what life will be like in heaven. What life will be like when all is said and done. And Jesus would take this same priority, this same passion, when he teaches his disciples how to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, to live as exiles means to live heaven down, not earth up. To live heaven down, not earth up. Living as exiles does not exempt us from engaging the world around us. Living as Jesus' people, as elect exiles, liberates us to engage the world that is differently. That our goal is not the same goal of every group and every cause and every movement that exists in this world. Our goal is not to turn this world into heaven. Our goal, our calling, our purpose is to give this world tastes of heaven. And when this world tastes heaven, that's when hope and healing will rise. That's when things begin to change. Now, you all know that we are living in challenging, at a challenging time. A challenging time in the city of Seattle, a challenging time in the history of our nation, a challenging time in the history of the world. There's a pandemic wreaking havoc on our life rhythms and our, the way we've customarily journeyed through this world. We're also witnessing the rise of, of racial tension and the, not really the rise of it, but the exposure of it, the revelation of deep residual racial tension and strife among various peoples in the world. And so the world is divided. The world is torn. But as Jesus' people, we must resist the temptation to mirror back to the world her own cracked shards of glass. We are sinners, yes, but we are sinners of a different sort. We do not allow the narrative of division and conflict in the world around us to define the narrative among us. We do not try to live the earth up. We do not reflect back to the earth what the earth is already like. No, we are a new community, a new people, a new society who are doing things differently. And the gospel of God's grace in Christ is now the defining narrative of our lives. Christ crucified and risen is what defines who we are. It's, defined, it's what defines how we are, our identity and our ethics. The story of Christ crucified and risen is what is the narrative that drives our influence and our mission. That if we're telling anything to the world right now, let's tell the world that Christ was crucified and risen. There is hope to be found in him. Everything outside of Christ is dead upon arrival but everything in Christ lives eternal everything in Christ will dwell forever everything in Christ will taste and be transformed by the realities of heaven so we don't want the narratives and the social imaginaries of our culture and our surrounding society to inform and to infect 
our identity, our ethics, our influence, and our mission. No, our narrative is the narrative of Christ crucified and risen. This narrative is what makes us strangers and exiles, sinners of a different sort. That means that when there is conflict or disagreement among us, we do not push back and draw back out of anger and frustration. We do not settle for division. Instead, we lean in consistently and constantly. We lean in in gentleness and respect. We ask questions of one another. We listen well to one another. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We seek and promote unity in Christ. The kind of unity that characterizes heaven. The kind of unity that provides the world a different social imaginary. The kind of unity that tells the world a different story the kind of unity that promotes the welfare of our city and our country and the world that we are in right now. And so let's fight against the social imaginaries of our culture that that are too inept to promote the kind of unity we've been chosen to display in the church. A unity that is bound by no one's blood but Jesus's. A unity that is formed and forged by the grace of of God and the gospel of Jesus. And it is in light of that that we want grace and peace to be multiplied to us as we journey through 1 Peter together. We want grace and peace to be multiplied among us as a church so that we might be who Jesus redeemed us to be and do the things that Jesus redeemed us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you Cause your grace and your peace to be multiplied among us. Would you help us in this moment to fix the eyes of our faith upon Christ crucified and risen and allow the gospel to be the the defining narrative of our lives. Let the images of the gospel and all that corresponds with the story of Christ, let those images shape and influence us more than anything else in our society, anything else in our culture. Let us be Jesus's people. Elect exiles, journeying through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. And as we journey through this world, God, let us be a blessing to it. Let us seek the welfare of wherever we are living, working, learning, and playing. Let us do this all as followers of Jesus for your glory and for the good of everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.